Well, on your notes this morning, so last week was part one, and today is part two, picking up on the Lord's Supper. So last week we spent more time really dealing with the historical context of some of the questions related to the Lord's Supper. We worked through the different parts of church history. And then today will be a little bit more covering more ground related uh, biblically and theologically to the Lord's Supper. So if you remember, Arnie kicked us off a couple weeks ago, helpfully introduced, worked through the meaning of the Lord's Supper and, uh, and, and several of those things very helpfully. Now we're working through historically. And then today will really be more a focus on question 81. So we will go through all four questions, but it'll really emphasize question 81. Um, so, so with that, we'll hop into our notes. Um, but before we go to question 81, I want to jumpstart this with uh, uh, a hypothetical, right? So not necessarily real, but maybe, Lord willing, it will be real one day in, in your life. So I want you to think of this context. So let's say you are helping a local group of believers start a church plant, right? So maybe there's a church in a particular area, and you're thinking through, we, we want to help plant a church in that area. So you have a core group of believers who are meeting right over time, right? And eventually, through the Lord's grace and support of other local churches, uh, this group of believers constitute as a local church, right? So at some point in time, this meeting now is an assembly of believers, right? It is now a constituted local church. And among many things that this new church will consider for its life and practice is this. How will they practice the Lord's Supper and upon what basis, right? So let's say you're, you're in a new context and then you're, you're asking yourself the questions. What does this look like? What does this mean for us? Why? On what grounds? Right? You're trying to answer these questions and think them through, but, but you're not just trying to think about them like we saw where it is simply built upon tradition right? or church custom, right? but trying to orient ourselves back to what um, uh, we, we, to, to, uh, Isaiah 8, right? to the law and to the testimony, right? back to the word. So, so with that, I want to use that as kind of a way to introduce us to question 81. So I'll read question 81 in the question and answer, and it's longer, but really it's just a repetition of Paul and then the Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right, quoting the words of the Lord Jesus on the words of institution. So it says this in question 81 in our study of the Orthodox Catechism. Whereas Christ promised that he will as certainly give his body and blood to be eaten and drank as they eat this bread broken and drink this cup. Answer. In the institution of the supper, the words of which are these, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also he took the cup when he had eaten and said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you shall drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you shall eat this bread and drink this cup, you show the Lord's death until he comes. And then it shows the scripture references. And then it follows up and says, this promise is repeated by St. Paul where he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? 
For we that are many are one bread and one body, because we are all partakers of one bread. Now, what you'll notice here in both this question and answer is it's really just a repetition of Scripture. But it's going back and it's helping us to answer that question. Upon what grounds do we practice the Lord's Supper? It's helping us to think through, uh, to, to, to think through this matter uh, biblically. So, and in particular, it's asking, where has Christ so promised this sign be connected with this reality, right? Us eating and drinking and being connected with the Lord's body broken and with his blood shed. And here this is indicative, right? Because it ultimately is rooting our faith and practice back to the Lord Jesus as the one who institutes. Now, with that, um, so the way I've put this on your notes is I tried to put some bullets, right? So what we're going to do is kind of work through the grounds and basis for which we practice the Lord's Supper. Now, in, in one sense, this is not going to be unfamiliar territory, right? We, in one sense, we go over this every Sunday, right? We'll, we'll repeat some passage, right? Going back to the, what, what you'll hear is the words of institution. But in another sense, I want us to slow down and to think through and just make sure we put this cohesive picture together, right? So again, it's to build on what Arnie did in regards to the meaning of the Lord's Supper, really focusing on John 6. So then, our, our first phrase that we'll work through uh, says, Our Lord Jesus Christ, in, in, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread. Now, with that, we start with the Lord Jesus. So ultimately, the Lord's Supper is instituted by the Lord Jesus, who is the new covenant's lawmaker. Now, this is an important point. When we think about, um, uh, uh, and, and, and this, this is what Paul, when he says in 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, he calls it the Lord's Supper, right? When he, when he says, uh, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. The Lord's Supper, right, is established by the Lord Jesus for the church. And you'll see in your notes the quote by John Gill. He says this, and it is called the Lord's Supper because it is by his appointment. It is made by him and for him. He is the sum and substance of it. And when rightly performed, it is according to his will. He is the maker and master of the feast and is the feast itself. Now that is a very succinct way to put together some deep theology, right? And I want to unpack some of this. Now it's interesting. So when, when we use the word um, uh, Lord's, right, for the Lord's Supper, that word's only used two times in the New Testament. Now, where else do you think that could be used, right? Now, it uses the term Lord all the time in the New Testament. But where else do you think that phrase Lord's, right, where, uh, where, where it's used as an adjective to describe something? Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, yes. So in Revelation 1.10, when John is writing in, in Revelation, he notes that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So in the same way, right, that the Lord's Supper is all about the Lord Jesus, right, the Lord's day is also a day all about who? The Lord Jesus, right? And again, it's only used two times in the New Testament. And I think that's important for us to pick up on. Now, secondly, when we talk about the words of institution, I think we should make a contrast here. So you'll hear the term, when we, when we talk about law, you'll hear the term natural law, and positive law. Now, natural law is law that is ingrained or a part of us being creatures made in God's image, 
right? So you go back to creation. We have the work-rest pattern, right? We have the Ten Commandments, murder, right? We have adultery. We have uh, uh, lying, stealing, etc. right? All those are baked into who we are as made in the image of God, right? Under any and all cultures, all circumstances, all people, right? It is forever binding on all people. But when we talk about positive law, positive law is dictated by the one who initiates, normally it's associated with a particular covenant, right? So when, you, uh, when we think about uh, the um, Abrahamic covenant and the sign of circumcision, that was not prior to Abraham, right? But it was with Abraham. It was not forever binding on God's people, but it was only under the time period or administration or the covenant with Abraham. Similar with the Mosaic covenant, right? The Mosaic laws that are established in the book of Exodus were only binding on God's people through the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic economy. Well, in the same way, the Lord's Supper is a positive law instituted by the Lord Jesus for the new covenant church. It is to be practiced under the, new, under the administration of the new covenant, right? So again, it, it's, it's uh, a simple yet uh, one that we want to be clear on. Now, if we go to the next part of the phrase when it says uh, the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed. So if you remember, what was that night on which he was betrayed? Passover. Yes, right? And this is important, right? So Passover is rich in symbolism, right? Because it is, it is a type preparing God's people, showcasing what, what was to come, right? And so, um, so when the Lord Jesus, when he institutes this new sacrament with baptism and the Lord's Supper, but with the Lord's Supper, it's based on the new and better sacrifice of the Passover, right? If you remember from, um, uh, from, from John 1.29, right? Uh, uh, I'm sorry, hold on. I'm getting ahead of myself. So, um, so this is all that the Passover in the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to. But it also notes this. It also shows an end to the Passover because the reality is here, right? So there's this transition that takes place. As the, the shadow goes away, right, because the substance has arrived. Um, in fact, even before the Passover, there's another type that goes farther back. And that is with, if you guys remember, Abraham and Melchizedek. So when, they, when Abraham goes to recover Melchizedek, right, when they come back, Abraham comes back from the rescue, Melchizedek meets him, right? who is a priest and king of God. And what does he do? He prepares for them bread and wine to nourish and refresh, and, and refresh them, right? And so it becomes this pattern and Passover picks up and then the Lord's Supper will pick up the same idea, right? With, with bread and with wine. Now, but we, we then ask the question, right? But if it's a fulfillment of Passover and there's only bread and wine, what has happened with the lamb, Right? There is no lamb in the new covenant Passover that we eat because the new covenant lamb is the lamb of God who took on flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And so we see then this fulfillment, right, taken on with the Lord Jesus. Now, 
if we go to the next part of the phrase where it says, took bread. Now, what kind of bread is used in the Passover? Do you guys remember? Unleavened bread, right? Because the idea with the Passover, right, it was associated that they had to move quickly, right? So instead of waiting with the yeast to then pick up and move, the bread was unleavened. Now, if... Um, uh, um, so the bread that the Lord Jesus used was unleavened bread during the time when he said when he took bread and broke it. But if you turn with me in your Bible, we'll, 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 we'll reference this text a couple times in, in the book of Acts. If you go to Acts 2.42, and you can just uh, uh, leave it there. So in Acts 2.42, when the New Testament then uses the term bread past the Lord Jesus, right? So uh, after the Lord Jesus, right, he's been raised. Now we're in the book of Acts. In here in Acts uh, 2.42, in Acts 27, and then also in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, when it uses the term bread, it's using not the, not the term used for unleavened bread, but it's using the common term for bread, which is, or did I say leavened bread? I meant to say unleavened bread for, sorry, let me say that over again. I'm getting myself confused. I'm getting tongue-tied. So the Lord Jesus with the Passover, unleavened bread. But then um, the apostles, right, in Acts, and then also in the churches, like in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, it's the common term for bread, which is leavened bread or regular bread, bread that rises, bread that has yeast in it. Now, um, now so then um, uh, the churches have then differed, right, whether they use leavened bread or unleavened bread, but the reality is that through the history of the church, both have been permissible. Now, uh, the key characteristic with the bread is not so much whether it's leavened or unleavened, but that it is bread that is broken, right? Because the symbolism associated with broken bread. So um, uh, we must remember uh, the picture of one bread and one body of Christ is a picture of unity, right? But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, for we that are many are one bread and one body because we are all partakers of one bread. Now, um, an interesting note uh, that we noted, uh, um, I can't remember if I said this, I think I did, but if I didn't, I'll just go ahead and say it now. Um, when we were doing our historical survey last week, so one of the things that we noticed with the early church is that uh, deacons were normally associated with the preparation of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, you even read in our particular Baptist uh, history, it's also deacons, that's what, that was one of the major tasks, if you will, was to make sure that bread was prepared and, 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 and wine was ready in order to be able to commune at the Lord's table, right? So it's an interesting thing, and I just wanted to make way of, of mention that because if you have a church of more than 25 people, you have a lot of bread, right? Independent of which, which way you do it. So just a, a, quick, a, quick, a quick side note. That was free. Um, when we go to, uh, so the next phrase on, on your notes. Uh, sorry, getting confused here. So on the next part of your notes, where it says, when he had given thanks. Now, it's interesting that two phrases are used interchangeably. And, and, and we see this when we look at um, Matthew and Mark say of the bread uh, when he had blessed it. But then Luke and Paul say of the bread when he had given thanks. 
And uh, to quote Ursinus, right, hence the idea to bless and to give thanks signify in this place the same thing. And, and we'll, we'll touch on that in uh, a little later in regards to application. So then the next is he broke it. Now the symbol is to reflect the thing signified, right? That's, that's a big thing that we've been talking about, sign and things signified, right? What is it pointing to? And the broken bread is to reflect two major ideas. So one, one, the greatness of Christ's suffering and death, his separation of his soul from his body. And two, this also signifies the communion of many with his own body and the bond of their union and mutual love. Right? And that's the idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship or sharing of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Right, so it's, it's, the, it's the two ideas of breaking and what's associated there um, with his suffering and separation. But then next, the Lord Jesus took and ate, right? And so then what's repeated is, Take, eat, right? And it'll say, then this is my body, which is broken for you. But this idea of take, eat, are not just in the indicative, right? Giving us a statement, but providing us a command, right? This is something that is to be carried on. So when we see this, but then we should ask the question, to whom is the command given? Now, if you turn with me, um, I I know, keep a finger in Acts 2, because we'll come back to that in a little bit. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> and while you're turning there, right? So remember, it's, uh, we're, we're dealing, we're, we're putting together both what is written in Paul when he is referring back to what was given to him from the Lord Jesus, and then what, what is also in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so in, um, in Matthew 26, to whom is this command given? Well, in the immediate context. It's the disciples. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, look with me uh, at, at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. I'm sorry, I'm in 2 Corinthians. Give me a second here. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, can I have someone go ahead and read that? Nice and loud. For as often as you eat, did you say 11, Yeah, eleven twenty six. yep. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Okay, great. So, we're, so now we're asking the question in 1 Corinthians 11, to whom does you refer to? Right, so carry with me. Uh, so go back 1126 and then work your way back down. Um, so if you look at 1 Corinthians 1120, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So the you in particular is associated with those who are coming together. Now look with me in verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together, what? As a church, right? Uh, And now go back to verse 17, right? But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So a couple of things that I think are indicative here, right? It is not only for you uh, in in general to the church, but it is to you, the church, when you come together and how, when you come together as a church. And this is important. Before we uh, talk any more about that, just turn back real quick to 1 Corinthians 1, 2, right? So one of the things that's always helpful, right, is you go back. So who then does the you refer to ultimately, right? You go, you go back 
Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and look at verse 2, where he says, so this is Paul address, addressing his addressees. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So the Lord's Supper, by implication, is not a private meal, right? In one sense, that's why 1 Corinthians 11 was written, is because the church started to treat it like it was a private meal, and then it started to be separated out between the rich and the poor, right? And, and, and Paul is like, when you come together, it's not for the better, right? So it is not intended for small group Bible studies, but the Lord's Supper is for the whole church when the whole church gathers. Now, historically, when we use this kind of language, uh, churches have called this the stated meetings of the church because this is when the church comes together as the church to do the business of the church, right? And that's to be in distinction from other gatherings which are smaller, right? Bible studies, um, small group discipleships, etc. right? Um, and so... Uh, uh, so generally speaking, the stated meetings of the church uh, include corporate worship on a Sunday, congregational meetings, and, and for some others, it may also include a midweek service or a prayer meeting where the whole church comes together. And normally that's the kind of stuff that gets put in like a church covenant or, 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 or some language like that. Now, so quick pause. So why is this significant? Why are we spending time thinking about what the Lord Jesus has instituted? And this is going to go back to that principle that we call the regulative principle of worship. Now, who remembers what the regulative principle of worship is normally contrasted with? The normative, the normative principle of worship, right? And do you want to take a stab at what, what the normative principle is? Yeah. The norm or do you want to find a friend? Like what the Bible doesn't explicitly say. Like regulative is what the Bible explicitly says worship is defined as spiritual songs, hymns, all of those things. So the normative principle is what it doesn't say. Like you take interpretation or liberty to define what the gray area is. Yes. Yep. So it, it's that idea and, and where, and, and we see this with Anglicans and, and Lutherans and others, where if the Bible does not prohibit it, it is allowed in the corporate worship of the church, right? Uh, now, again, when, when we talk about the regular principle of worship, or the normative principle of worship, this is not when we think about like everyday Christian living, right? Because there is wisdom and other things that are involved in that, right? Beyond scripture. But when we talk about the regulative principle of worship and when it's contrasted with the normative principle of worship, it is associated when the church gathers as the church to be the church, right? And it outlines what that looks like. And in that sense, it is only to be what is commanded and commended, right? Um, we think about that example from Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, right? What happened with Nadab and Abihu, right? They were priests and they offered profane fire in worship. And what happened? The Lord consumed them. And this is a key phrase because he had not commanded this, right? So it is that idea that is not simply what is, uh, what, what is not stated is left open, but it is only, it is to be constricted to what God has said 
and commended. And that is why it is so important. That is why you see in, in, um, uh, with uh, Protestants and the Reformed, it is so important for us to root it back in Scripture, right, with its original institution. Now, um, now uh, let me see here. So, one other implication that I want to bring out when we, when we look at this command, take, eat, right? Now, we have stated that this is for the local church, right? Like we looked at in 1 Corinthians, which, is, which are those who are in Christ, specifically, according to 1 Corinthians 1-2, sanctified and set apart in Christ. In that sense, the Lord's Supper is for believers, and not just believers, they are believers who are members of the church in Corinth, and by implication, they had previously been baptized, because that is... When we look at the book of Acts, the normal pattern is sinners are saved, baptized, and then added to the church. Now, if we go next uh, to the phrase where he says, this is my body, which is broken for you. So I feel like in one sense, last week was really just a long commentary working through the history of the church on, on, on this phrase, right? This is my body, right? And so I, I would again ref, refer back to, to last week, but we'll just quickly ask the question, should this be taken in a wooden literal fashion, right? Apart from the regular rules of grammar. And the answer to that I think is no, right? Jesus would speak like this often when he would say, like in John 10, I am the door, right? I am the gate. He would say these different things, but he didn't mean that he was a literal door or a literal gate. In the same way, he's not literally the bread. Uh, this is absurd to Christian reason and interpretation. Now, uh, if I can have someone read on your notes where it says Christ then, can I have a volunteer read? Yeah, Stephanie. Excellent. Yeah, and it's always interesting, right? Remember, remember the comment about Augustine from last week, right? He is like uh, Rebecca with two children, right? And he gives birth to the Protestant Reformation and the Roman Catholic Church, right? And so we quote Augustine here on our side, right? Where he's saying, you know, in, in, in one sense, right? Uh, this is my body when he gave the sign of his body. Now, I, I want you to think about this. When, um, when he says... Uh, this is my body, which is broken for you. How many of you have thought about this in terms of a promise? Now, I, I, I thought this was interesting, just working through and reading, that several of the common, com, com, commentators would bring out and slow down and want us to make sure that we see in here a promise when it says, this is my body, which is broken for you. And if I can have someone read the next quote from Otto Thelemann, where it says, here he merely adds. I'll read it. Yep. Here he, he merely adds the sacramental rite, which clothes and seals the promise, as if he would say, I have promised in the gospel eternal life to all that eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now I confirm and seal with this eternal rite, the promise, sorry, this external rite, the promise which I have made, that henceforth all that believe this promise and eat this bread 
may be fully persuaded and assured that they do truly eat my flesh, which is given for the life of the world, and that they have eternal life. Excellent. Yeah, so we see here this idea that, again, it is, it is a word, and in particular, it is a word of promise, right? It works, again, reminding us Christ and what he's done for us. So notice next on your notes, um, uh, still under here where it's my body which is broken for you. And then this is a key phrase. And it was interesting because even you see this in some of the reformers and others is that they would say it's clearly when he says this is my body, it's referring to uh, the thing, uh, the, the sign and the thing signified. Because right after that, it says, this do in remembrance of me, right? Which is the whole point and function of a sign, right? It's pointing to something. So when it says, this do in remembrance of me, well, what kind of remembering, what kind of memorial in that sense is it? Well, it is to be a believing remembrance. So it is to be a meditation where we again cling to Christ and his benefits by faith. To think of it this way, it is not like when you are in history class and you remember George Washington and what he had done for the country, right? But instead, it is to be a remembering that is tied with believing, right? So it is, it is an application of that history over and over again, right? It is to be taken and appropriated by faith. Now, again, I think Otto Thelemann here is really helpful, and we'll just go ahead and, and, and read. Sometimes it's just easier to quote people instead of to... You know, summarize when they when they've kind of put it well. Can I have someone read that is meditating upon my benefits? Where he's talking about this idea of remembering. Yeah, Crystal. That is meditating upon my benefits, which I have bestowed upon you, and which this sacrament calls for your remembering, feeling also in your heart that I give you these my gifts, and celebrating them by public confession in the sight of God, angels and men, and so giving thanks for them. Remembrance of Christ comprehends the remembrance of his benefits together with faith and the giving of thanks for Christ by the use of these signs admonishes us of himself and of his benefits and stirs up and establishes our confidence in him from which it naturally follows that we also publicly express our gratitude to him. Excellent. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, so, again, I think that is a very helpful way where he's capturing this idea of this do in remembrance of me. But let's take it. Let, let, but let's slow that down, and I want us to just press that in for a minute, brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to come each week to the Lord's Supper, believing and giving thanks. Those are the two things that we see really stressed. We must prepare our hearts by seeing two things: our unworthiness of because of sin, and the worthiness of Christ. What does this mean? We need to take time to prepare our hearts. Think about how much of God's blessing and strength in our Christian life we have missed from the Lord's Supper because we allowed our minds to be distracted or when we just go through the motions. Think how Satan would love to have us miss out on the security and rest for our souls because we did not approach the table believing and resting afresh in Christ and his work for us. It is not just believing at some point in the past that is being stressed, but it is over and over again receiving and resting in Christ. In fact, this is why pastorally we give a brief talk before we take the Lord's Supper, right? It's to help us connect the text 
that was just preached and to bring it back to Christ and his benefits that he's purchased for us. So when the pastor reads the words of institution, when the gospel promise is proclaimed with Christ in him crucified, and when we see this spiritual reality in the sign of the broken bread in the cup, we are reminded again of our standing with God by faith. But I want you to notice this. How, I want you to notice how this orients the Christian life. It constantly orients us to the glory of Christ in his crucifixion. It points us to free grace in Christ. It continually constrains us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our performance, which can be so discouraging, and constrains us to see Christ by faith as the one who does not turn away any that come to him. And with that, it reminds me of the saying that's normally attributed to Luther that says, when I look to myself, I think, how can I be saved? And when I look to Christ, I think, how can I be lost? Now, next on your notes, if you will, we'll look at when he says, likewise also he took the cup. Um, yep. And um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a little out of order. Where he says, likewise he took the cup, uh, took the cup when he had eaten and said, this is the cup, of, uh, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as you shall drink it in remembrance of me. So this idea of drink of it, all of you, right? Now this, interesting, man, I'm sorry. I keep getting my tongue tied. Now it's interesting. How many, I know a couple of you had been in a Roman Catholic mass before, right? Now what is one thing that is normally missing in a Roman Catholic mass? Blood. Blood? Yes. So it is the cup. So the only person who gets to drink the cup is the priest. And he's the only one, and none of the other congregants or communicants, if you want to use that term, partake. Now, this here in 1 Corinthians 11 goes, in the very words of institution, go against this idea. Because it is to be both bread and the cup. Um, now, when he says, this cup is the new covenant, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, right? Matthew 26, 28. So here, we explicitly connect the sign of the Lord's Supper with the new covenant that is established with the death or the blood of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you think of the new covenant, and I'll, I'll, this is not a rhetorical question, so I'm, I'm looking for people to raise their hand and, and give input. So when you think of the new covenant of grace, what are the things included in its content? When you think about the new covenant, what are the things that you think of? What are, what are, what's normally associated with the new covenant? The atonement of Christ. Oh, the, atonement of Christ? the law written upon the heart. The law written upon the heart? Yep. Yes, yes. This renovative work that takes place. Yep, absolutely. A new heart. Yep. The fulfillment of the law of righteousness for all his people. Yes, yes. So there's a fulfillment of everything in the law and the prophets that's pointing to this better covenant, right? 
In fact, when we think about like the book of Hebrews, right? It is written because it's with better promises, with a better mediator, on better terms and conditions, right? It's, it's, it's all pointing to this reality, right? So, and, and what then is the sign associated with the new covenant? It is this meal, right? Because this meal is picturing for us this reality that is established with Christ in him crucified. All right. So, um, now when we talk about the cup, what should be used? Um, I'll just read in Matthew 26, 28 through 29. Again, this is part of the words of institution from Jesus where he says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now, when we think about the words here read in Matthew 26, this is on the night of Passover. So this is during uh, Passover. And so when Jesus refers to the fruit of the vine, he is referring to, uh, to the wine that was used in Passover. Um, and uh, so one book um, written by, um, I cannot remember Matheson's first name. What is Keith, thank you, yes. All right. uh, written by Keith Matheson on, on, on the Lord's Supper. And he notes in his book uh, that the uh, use of wine or wine mixed with water, like, like, like we had referenced last week with the early church, um, was the practice of the church without dispute for the first 1,800 years. In the 1800s, Thomas, Welch, Thomas Welch, who was a Methodist preacher, became the inventor of Welp, Welch, uh, Welch grape juice, a first of its kind. So instead of fermented grapes, right, because generally speaking, you don't have refrigeration, and so grapes that sit out after they've been crushed, right, ferment. You know, all, all takes is a, a little bit of time. And so then um, the creation of grape juice was tied with the temperance movement, which advocated for the complete abstinence of alcohol. Uh, the Methodist church, along with other churches who followed, followed shortly thereafter, changed the use of wine in the Lord's Supper for grape juice. Now, at FBC, we serve wine and accommodate those who would like to use grape juice for their conscience sake, right? Now, next, the phrase um, on your next point, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you show or proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then this, this question comes up often, as often, right? Well, then, how should that be taken? In what sense is, is that to be understood? And it's, uh, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, well, it's to be often, right? Um, not, 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 not the opposite there. So, but churches have differed, right? What, whether that's weekly, biweekly, monthly, quarterly. Um, and so, um, uh, I know I said, keep your finger in Acts 2.42. That was a long time ago. So more than likely, you just need to turn there. Yep. Uh, if, if you kept your finger there, I'm proud of you because that was, uh, that was perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in Acts 2.42, um, so I'll have someone read Acts 2.42, and then can I get someone also to read Acts 20, verse 7? Who'd be willing to read Acts 20, verse 7? All right, Brian. All right. Whenever, uh, whenever anyone gets to Acts 2.42, go ahead. Yep. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer. All right, very good. Right, so verse 41, 3,000 souls are added to the church. And then what, what is it that they devote themselves to, right? And you'll, you'll hear this phrase that we use 
the ordinary means of grace, right? The way in which God, when he gathers his church, uses to nourish and strengthen them, right? And you'll see it includes uh, the preaching of the word, right? The apostles' teaching. It includes prayers, right? But then it also includes the breaking of bread. And we'll see that as a term used, right, for the Lord's Supper, right? Because it's the thing that's signified, right? Broken bread, right? For that broken body. And then Acts 20, verse 7, Brian? On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. All right, excellent. So notice in Acts 20, verse 7, uh, that they gathered, and they gathered on the first day of the week, right? Which in, in that calendar was a Sunday, which is what? It's the Lord's Day, right? We talked about that earlier. So it is on Sunday, the Lord's Day, when the church gathers as the church, right? We, we talked about this with 1 Corinthians 11. But then also notice this, right? In, in Acts 20 and verse 7, there's an association with the breaking of bread and the preaching of the word right? That those are to be together, right? Or as we have categorized previously, the invisible word preached and the visible word seen, right? And, that, and that's the idea when you hear the term sacrament, that, that, that's the idea of what it's referring to, right? Is this visible sign appealing to our senses. Now, now notice this, uh, this seems to be the weekly practice of the church in Troas, right? If you're looking at Acts 20 and verse 7. So when we see the phrase, phrase to break bread, it's a purpose statement. They gathered for the purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, right? Well, how often does the church meet as the church to do this, right? The church meets every Lord's Day, right? It's a part of that weekly, uh, weekly Sabbath rhythm that we even see in the early church. Now, um, if you remember from what we talked about last week, it seems that this practice was then carried on in the early church. Um, remember we talked about the early church period of church history was like, you know, 100 AD to 500 AD, right? So we see that, that very idea uh, continuing of the weekly celebration of the Lord's table. Um, so... The next phrase that I want us to look at is from Paul's words that he uses now in 1 Corinthians 10. So we've, if you will, we've kind of worked our way through 1 Corinthians 11 and the Synoptic Gospels. And now Paul, in, um, in, 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 a, in a section going against idolatry, ties in the Lord's Supper. And in 1 Corinthians 10, in verses um, 16 and 17, turn there with me real quick uh, to 1 Corinthians 10. Um, Verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now again, if you wanted to put in your Bible that word for participation, it could be used as a partaker, but it's also that word for fellowship, koinonia. Right? Now, when we use that phrase, it's going to be the thing that is shared or what is common among us, right? that idea of um, communion. So, but I think when we talk about the cup of blessing, there's an important element to this. If you remember earlier, right, we talked about how, um, how the giving of thanks 
and then also a, a blessing from uh, uh, Matthew and Mark and then Luke and Paul, right? It's, it's two words signifying the same thing. By implication, I think there is an aroma of the Lord's Supper that it should not only be one of sobriety and a seriousness, right? As we think about our sin, we think about Christ and him crucified. But it is also to be one of joy and celebration, right? It should not just be a cup of sorrow, but it is truly to be what? A cup of blessing, right? One that is to be where we rejoice and we give thanks. So again, we just go back by way of what we men, uh, mentioned earlier, when we do this in remembrance, right? Preparing our hearts. Are you taking advantage of preparing your heart before our corporate worship service? Brothers and sisters, we should be praying for the blessing of the ministry of the word and that each of us would grow in faith, right? And that we would, um, that we would receive the joy that Christ has for us, even in this appointed means. Now, it also says the communion of the blood of Christ. Now, this sign points us to the reality that we have union with Christ, that we are made a partaker, right? Um, and by implication, because we have union with Christ, we have communion with all those who are in his body, right? But I also think there's an element how this is to orient the church, right? It is to orient us, like we said earlier, to Christ and him crucified, right? The Lord's Supper is a massive picture to this reality. And I think one of the implications that's important for us is how this continually sets and trains a Christian's spiritual taste buds. It constantly puts forward who and what is important, namely Christ and our constant need and dependence on him, right? Christ and him crucified. It tells me over and over again the words of our Lord. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing right? We see it connecting this reality and training our spiritual taste buds, right? To that, to that way. Now, so we see them with 1 Corinthians 10. There is both a vertical element and a horizontal element, right? We truly and really do spiritually fellowship with Christ in the supper, and we also fellowship with one another in partaking. Now, like I said, most of our time was going to be spent on, uh, on question 81. I feel like I was good to my word on that one. And so real quick, what I do want to do, though, is make sure I hit just quickly on questions 82, 83, and 84. Now, with question 82, uh, can I have a volunteer read the question and answer for 82? Are then the bread and, the, and wine made the very body and blood of Christ? No, as the water of baptism is not turned into the blood of Christ, but is only a sign and pledge of those things that are sealed to us in baptism. So neither is the bread of the Lord's Supper the very body of Christ. 
although according to the manner of sacraments and that form of speaking of them, which is usual to the Holy Spirit, the bread is called the body of Christ. Excellent. Right. And so again, when it uses that term in a manner according to sacraments, all it's saying is sign and things signified, right? That it is so associated in that way to help us, right? So we go then to question 83. Why then does Christ call bread his body and the cup his blood or the New Testament in his blood? And St. Paul calls bread and wine the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Answer, Christ not without great consideration, speaks in this manner, not only to teach us that as the bread and wine sustains the life of the body, so also his crucified body and shed blood are indeed the meat and drink of our souls, whereby they are nourished to eternal life. But more than that, by this visible sign and pledge, he may assure us that we are as surely partakers of his body and blood through the working of the Holy Spirit as we do perceive by the mouth of our body these holy signs in remembrance of him, and further also that his sufferings and obedience is certainly ours, as though we ourselves had suffered punishment for our sins and had satisfied God. Now, what this is saying, I think John Calvin has helpfully captured. And if I can have a volunteer read this John Calvin quote, because I think here... This has been such a helpful reminder for me of God's goodness and kindness, not only in what he has done, but how he has done it. Can I have someone read that quote on your notes where it starts, since however? Yeah. Since however, this mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout, union with Christ, is by nature incomprehensible. He shows this figure and image in visible signs best adapted to our small capacity. Indeed, by giving guarantees and tokens, he makes it as certain for us as if we had seen it with our own eyes. For this very familiar comparison penetrates into even the dumbest minds. Just as bread and wine sustain physical life, so our souls fed by Christ. So here's the beauty of this. The Lord knows our weak, frail frame and how we can be so thick and dull with spiritual understanding, right? Remember, it was like uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then they're like, hey, remember how our hearts were burning? Was that the Lord, right? Like all the time, right? Like not putting these things together. And in a similar manner, right, we see here this idea that we can be slow and dull. So what does the Lord do? He uses something that we use all the time that engages all five of our physical senses, right, with this reality, in order to help us perceive and understand to the nourishment of our own souls this invisible reality, right? Specifically Christ and Him crucified and how we benefit and nourish from Him. So with that, um, question 84, we really kind of covered last week uh, going through the history of, of, of the church. Um, so we'll just go ahead and we will... Um, We'll go ahead and close here just because we're, we're up on time. So I apologize. I know I, I like to give folks questions, but we'll, we'll just close. All right. So let's go ahead. Let's, let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this time. Thank you for time in your word. We pray that you would even bless now the gathering of our church as we gather as the church. Pray that you would help us, strengthen us, and that you would uh, do that work that only you can do. 
from the power of both your word and your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.